Welcome to Creative Twist. I'm Sally Vanderpump and I'm going to be talking to people who have rediscovered their creativity after a break or taken a twist in their career path and tried something new. I know creativity has made my life better. Let's find out more about how it has changed my guests' lives. Vicky Arlett has been composing for television, theatre, musicals and radio for more than 25 years. Her albums of music for young children are streamed more than 30 million times worldwide each year, and her comedy videos have garnered more than 70,000 views on YouTube. Today she joins me to talk about the humour she found in motherhood and how it led her to take a leap into comedy. We talk about the power of practice, why women need the confidence to keep knocking on doors, and how Vicky is planning to make her own entrance onto the West End musical scene. So Vicky, thank you very much for joining me. You're welcome. It's lovely to see you. We were talking before about, um, obviously we're talking about creativity and how that affects your life, but obviously you've had quite a creative life all the way through, would you say? Because you, yeah, you've so. always been a musician. Yeah, yeah. So um, my job pre-midlife crisis, I guess, <laughs> was being a musician um, and a composer. So I trained to be a composer for film and TV. And that's what I did off and on until I had kids. Um, mostly theatre and TV, actually. Um, wrote loads of music I think 240 children's television programs I did the music for for um, Channel 5's Milkshake uh, that was in the sort of 90s and um, and also uh, sort of taught music along the way when in between jobs sort of thing um, yeah so I have always been creative and always, my aim was always to try and earn money from something that I loved and enjoyed and I sort of did it, but it was hard. I've only recently managed to um, make a good living um, out of it. So it has taken three decades, I guess. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Got there in the end. Yeah. Were your family all musical? Was it a kind of creative family growing up? Yeah, it was. My sister, who's five years older than me, she is also a musician, and she now plays for the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and she's done that for uh, the whole of her career as well. Um, so she, I guess I followed slightly in her footsteps, um, and both my brothers have ended up being writers. Um, so one writes novels and the other is a journalist. So I think it was partly, um, encouragement for my parents because I, my dad had been at university with various big well, people who have become big names like, um, Ian McKellen and Trevor Nunn. And he, he was tempted to go into that world at the time and didn't and decided to become a barrister. And I think there was a part of him that always slightly regretted that choice, that he took the sort of safer route. And so he always encouraged the artistic um, parts of our lives and, you know, was very happy to pay for lessons or whatever we wanted to learn and would come to concerts and, and, and very much sort of encouraged us along the way as, as well as my sister. Um, so I think it was, um, yeah, that, that sort of support from home definitely... You know, we never got the, oh, you shouldn't be a musician, you're never going to make any money, you know, you should really become a lawyer or, or, or whatever it is, a teacher. You know, there was always that, if you want to, then, you know, if that's what you love, then I'll support you, you know. So certainly that helped, I think. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I think so many people, I know from my point of view, I definitely felt like I should get a backup career, I, I suppose. So that's mm. one of the reasons that I went into journalism. So it must be quite sort of freeing and to have that, yeah, to have that encouragement to just go for it. And because you can always change route if it doesn't work as well, can't you? Exactly. and But I think, you know, with you with acting, it would have been much harder because acting is so tough and so difficult to get the parts and, and, and a regular living. And I think as a musician, you have, we have it slightly easier. We've always had a stronger union, which means we get paid better and we can always teach, which is harder for, for actors and actresses to do. So, uh, and, you know, there's session work and playing in bands. And, you know, the, I think generally it's slightly easier if not to make a, a massive income to at least get by uh, being a musician but it's certainly harder I think in, in the acting world. So where did you train Vicky? Um, so I did a music degree at Edinburgh University so I did four years at Edinburgh and then um, I did a postgraduate at the London Colli College of Music and that was um, specifically composing for film and TV so I did that for a year and then um, that was it I was out trying to earn a living and sending off loads of demo tapes and getting endless rejections. And, um, but I had a nice, a nice talk from someone in my uh, postgraduate. Um, he's called Howard Goodall. I don't know if you know him. He's a composer. He wrote the music for um, Blackadder and, um, you know, that fantastic theme, Blackadder, Blackadder, yeah. all that. <laughs> you know, he, 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 does, he did a lot of Rowan Atkinson stuff because they were at uni together. And he did a talk for us and he said, look, it took me seven years to be able to earn a living just from my music. And I remember thinking that's such a great piece of advice. You know, when I left, if I hadn't made it in a year, it would be fine. If I hadn't made it in four years, seven years, that'd be fine because even Howard Goodall hadn't. And it took me actually a lot longer than that. But um, it was a great piece of advice, I think, to get it at that time to say, don't worry if, you know, in the first few years of your career, you're not sort of raking in the cash and having huge successes so I'm grateful yeah, it to takes him time that. to build up that mm. takes time to build up the network as well doesn't it because so much is to do with working with people that know your work and trust you exactly exactly and who you know not necessarily what you know and yeah. um yeah lots of factors I think yeah so tell me what hap happened to make you take the plunge into comedy how did that come about <laughs> well it was a bit of a shock I just sort of fell into it actually it wasn't I never planned I never even considered doing it and what happened is I had moved out of London I had a family and at the same time the depression hit and the company that had given me most of my work tv work was struggling so my TV work came, came to an end and all I was doing was looking after young children and I started a baby music group and I was doing singing with babies um, three mornings a week. So entirely, my, all my working life was either, you know, singing nursery rhymes with kids or teaching kids piano and violin or looking after my own children. So everything was all about kids and I had no sort of adult st stimulation at all. And I really missed it and I wasn't performing at all. There was nothing I felt I was sort of giving all the time, either to my pupils, to the babies or to my kids. And there was nothing that was for me, no me time, which I think is something a lot of mums struggle with. And one day, I think it was the end of a summer holiday, and I was just, you know, I just said to my husband, please just take the kids out anywhere for an afternoon. I just want to sit down and write a song. Um, and I sat down 
and my aim was to write a best-selling pop song and make lots of money and retire. And actually what came out, I just started with the lyrics and I wrote um, a comic song about being a mum. And I went at lunchtime and read the lyrics to my sister and my dad who were, who were there at the time. And they were chuckling away at the lyrics. And I thought, actually, I might be onto something here if I can use my music and be funny and entertain people. So then I went away and wrote the music to go with the song, you know, the melody and the compliment. And I put it online, I put it on YouTube, just a very simple little YouTube video of it. It was called Mum, Can You Wipe My Bum? And it's about all the millions of things that people ask you, that the kids ask you to do all day long. It's very fast lyrics, you know, Mum, can you do this? Mum, can you do that? Mum, can you? Mum! And um, anyway, it got this sort of amazing response online and mums started sharing with each other and it sort of travelled all around the world to mums in different countries. And, you know, it's not surprising really, I guess, because motherhood is the same all around the world. You know, uh, there's, you, people all around the world are thinking, feeling the same things of, of, um, of joy, but also frustration. And, um, and so I think it started getting thousands of hits. And then I thought, well... I might just carry on and do a few more. So I did, and that's where it started. And I think I, I wrote three songs, and I thought, well, now I've got to go and perform them somewhere, really. Uh, where do I do that? And I don't know, someone suggested, or maybe I just knew where to go, but I decided to try an open mic night. And I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was quite nervous, I think. And I just went to this one on Shaftesbury Avenue in London, and you just put your name in a hat, and you have to wait for it to be pulled out. And then you go up and you do your slot and you have five minutes and you can't run over. And I waited and waited to have my name pulled out and it didn't come and it didn't come and it didn't come. I think I was probably second last of about 40 performers. And I finally got up and it went really well. And I, and it went, yeah. And I was, I mean, it didn't subsequently always go well after that, but my very first gig went well. And I think that was a bit of a, um, I don't know. It's a little bit like a drug, you know, if, if, if it goes well, you want to have some more. If it goes badly, you also want to have some more because you want to prove that you can, you know, you can still get it right and you can still make people laugh. And so whatever happened, I, I was kept sort of drawn back to it and I carried on doing various open mic nights and some were terrible and some were brilliant. And over time, I just sort of started trying to work out what, what, what worked, what didn't. Um, and realised it was going to be a really, really long journey if I did want to do this, and that most people who are successful have been doing the small clubs for about 10, 15 years before they make it. And um, Anyway, so that's where it all started, and I ended up going to Edinburgh two years in a row, and now I sort of look back and thought, God, how, how crazy, you know, what was I thinking? I know, it's quite extraordinary to me that you just went you know, that you launch into it in such a dramatic way, in a way. It's just such a... It's very brave. Yeah, I think I didn't realise there were going to be some horrible lows as well as highs. I think at the beginning I thought, hey, this is going to be... You know, I'm good at music, I know that. I think I can make people laugh. This is going to be easy for me. And then actually I realised it was much harder than I thought it was going to be and that I needed to, you know, for instance have some patter between the songs and I had to be able to respond to audiences and not audiences will be the same and so for instance I might go down really well with an older audience of mostly women but if I performed my songs to a young audience of 20 something men they would probably be talking over me after a while <laughs> and I did have some horrible experiences I did um 
I did one which was at the comedy store and it's called um, The Gong Show. Have you heard of it? Yes. So you basically have to try and last five minutes before the audience boo you off, basically, or you get gonged off, which is when the compere sort of hits his big gong. So um, you, as soon as you start floundering or you don't make them laugh for more than about 30, 40 seconds, that's it, you're off. Um, anyway, it was my sort of innocent, I don't know, I was, didn't know what to expect, but I just turned up and they, they were queuing around Piccadilly Circus to get in. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, this is terrifying. And I went in, my dad and his girlfriend at the time had come to listen. Again, you have to wait for your slot and everybody else is bombing and getting gonged off and you're like, oh, what am I doing? And <laughs> you'd go up on stage. And this is how naive I was. I had a song and it had, with a lot of songs, you have to have a bit of a setup before you get to the funny stuff. So there was probably a setup of about 30, 40 seconds. And before I got to the end of this, they were just shouting, chanting, tell us a joke, tell us a joke, tell us a joke, tell us a joke. And then gong, and the gong went, and I just had to walk off stage, humiliated. I went back to sit with my dad in the audience, and he was like, mm, I'll go and get us a drink. So oh. <laughs> he went off to the bar. <laughs> um, so you have oh. to, you know, you have to roll with the punches, and you have mm. to be ready for that sort of rubbish, and, and be happy to think, well, it was just a bad night, and tomorrow might be different. And what, how could I, you know, done things differently? Um, you know, was it my fault? Was it the audience? I think a lot of people come off going, oh, the audience was rubbish. Oh, they didn't get me. And actually, you've got to look at yourself and go, really, was I, was I right for the audience? Was I doing the right sort of thing? Yeah. So then did you adapt your performances depending on which audiences you were performing for? Well, or did you it choose is really your, hard. Your... Yeah, I did try to adapt, but it's very hard because you never actually know what the audience is going to be like. You don't know... Mm what age group they'll be you don't know um sometimes you can like I would get booked for things which would be a woman only audience and you know they'd be mostly mothers you know and that, that I would know would be sort of fairly safe territory for me um or like school PTA stuff you know you're pretty sure that you're going to hit the mark there but if you're I did realize that if I want to um be a more sort of everyday comedian that I would have to start doing material that was more universal and that wasn't just about being a mum or um, being a middle-aged woman, so that I could go into a club of 20-somethings and still make them laugh. Um, yeah, but then, you know, you've also got to be true to who you are as well, otherwise you're not funny. So it's a, it's a tricky balance and something that I'm still working on. And I think, you know, comedy is like learning an instrument or learning a language. It literally takes 10, 15 years, and, you, and you've got to practice your art and there's lots of different parts to it it's not just sitting down writing jokes it's uh reacting to audiences and um you know uh, playing a crowd and just little things like how you come on stage you know that that how you present yourself in that first five seconds first impressions are very important so there's lots and lots of things to think about and comedians mm. never stop learning i think just sort of the fascination but also makes it um very very difficult it's much more mm. difficult I mean I think being a musician is hard enough but actually com comedy is 10 times harder <laughs> I think it's there's something very exposing about comedy isn't there it's like when it's really authentic is when it's kind of most powerful in a way so that takes a lot of courage to really show yeah. yourself there's that bit that, um airing dirty laundry but there's also the you know 
exposing in the way that if I was to sit and play my violin in front of a crowd, they might politely applaud, you know, applause at the end and then disappear. But if I stood up to make them laugh and I didn't, it would be painfully obvious that I was doing a bad job. Um, you know, they might show me that with their reaction. Um, so music, you can get away with a lot more. You know, you can mm. just play them a nice piece of music. You might make the odd mistake; doesn't really matter. They'll they'll appreciate it for what it is. But comedy, you know, you either make them laugh or you don't, and that's it. Were there ever times when it didn't go well and you came off and thought, "I'm never doing that, never doing that again"? Um, yeah, there was. I think the worst time was when actually I was invited to go and do Britain's Got Talent, and um, oh my God, that was completely terrifying. And um, basically I turned up and uh, there's lots of sort of waiting around and interviews and um, TV stuff. And then eventually you get to go backstage. And I just remember the roar of the crowd. And I think it was in uh, the Dominion Theatre, which is massive, you know, it's the one on Tom Court Road. And there must have been 2,000 people in the audience or something. And just the sound of the audience was terrifying. And I think the lady who went on before me with this tiny old biddy who was doing a silly dance and they decided that they absolutely loved her and they went nuts for her and then it was my turn <laughs> and first of all my ukulele wasn't working so it was really awkward there was a moment of awkwardness when we were trying to get that going and again if I'd been more experienced I probably could have kept the crowd joking with me or something um and um, but I didn't and it was all a bit eggy and then they wanted me to talk about my composition before they started so I was talking about the music I'd written and I think the crowd were already thinking oh she's a bit full of herself she's sort of talking about how much you know composition she's done for tv you know and and then I started playing and um it was an audience participation number and it, I, I really needed the judges to get involved to make it work and David Williams, bless him, was really getting into it. And he was, um, and so was Amanda Holden. Um, but Alicia Dixon buzzed me quite early on. And then the crowd started getting restless. And I can't remember what they started. They started chanting or something. And I just thought, oh, I've lost them. And I just unplugged and walked off stage. And, and um, then there was, um, um, what are they called? Uh, Anton Deck at the side saying, do you want to go on and get hear your feedback? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Sorry, but <laughs> I just left. And I did come home that night, and I think I'd been foolish enough to sort of allow myself to think that it, it was going to go well and things would start progressing for me and I would get some, you know, publicity, et cetera, et cetera. And I hadn't really thought through the, what if it doesn't go well thing, which, again, was naive. And um, I, I remember that night just thinking, I think it was also the sort of, I was terrified that they might show it on telly, actually, and make me look an idiot on telly. And thankfully, they didn't in the end, but I didn't know that at the time. So um, was it a mistake? I don't know, possibly. Um, but yeah, I was a bit naive. And I did, at the end of that, come home thinking, I'm really not sure I can do this anymore. And then I talked to a few friends, and they said, don't be ridiculous. You know, you have to keep going. And the other thing that was a bit awkward was that my kids were in the audience. Um, and I, that was kind of heartbreaking for me to see them, what I thought was basically being humiliated on stage, you know, with all those people. They were younger than they are, are now, obviously. But 
And I'm not sure how much they really remember or appreciated how it felt for me. Um, because I haven't really spoken to them about it. I think once I mentioned it to, to my daughter. But yeah, I was, I didn't want them. Yeah, that was one of the reasons my friend said, you've got to keep going. Because if you show them that you give up after a, um, a knock like that, then you're not showing, teaching them to be resilient and to um, keep these things in perspective for what they are, um, which is just a moment that went wrong. And it doesn't mean that you're not funny or not talented or not good at what you do um, it was just a, a battle you lost like a tennis match or something you know and you carry on and you win the next one that's a really good way to look at it isn't it that it's just leave it in that moment and move on to the next match is a good is a good analogy I think and then modeling it for your kids is just is really powerful that yeah you make you know doesn't go the way you planned but you can pick yourself up and give it yeah. another shot yeah, it's an important lesson, isn't it? And it's it's always just one person's opinion. It might be a review or something that you've done that you were unhappy with. But it's usually just one's person, one person's opinion. And I think on that day, you know, Alicia Dixon took a dislike to me and then I lost the crowd. And um, yeah, it's just a moment that didn't go quite as planned, but that's all it is. It's just a moment. And, um, you know, doesn't mean you'll have many other moments that are kind of fulfilling and and yet they're always learning experiences you know if it went wrong it's probably something you can learn from and pick yourself up and take that lesson you might you might have to have, take a few days just to be miserable yeah um, nurse your wounds <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like people who give you performance notes just when you've just come off stage you're like no not now <laughs> just just say I did brilliantly and then maybe in two or three days very gently tell me how I might have improved but not right now <laughs> On the other sort of end of the scale, what was your favourite, what's been your favourite experience performing? Um, oh, gosh. There, oh, there have been many. I mean, at the first tour I did in Edinburgh, I did get nominated for an award and that was, a, that was thrilling. Um, and that did help me get some publicity and stuff. But yeah, it's just, often they're the small gigs, actually, the more intimate ones. Um, I love gigging in my hometown of St Albans because... People know me and they come to see me because they like what I do and they come uh, wanting to have a laugh and have a great time and they, they have a few drinks before they come and, you know, they're all on social media saying, we're off to see Vic, you know, and, um, and, then, and, and they're just warm and willing. And that's, that makes a difference because if you go, say, for instance, I go to London and there's an audience that I don't know, they don't know me, I might still have a great time with them. But... I think it's that anticipation when I'm backstage and I can already hear the excitement and the laughter from the crowd. And I know, actually, I think this is going to be, this is going to go really well. And I, I'll have to, to, to muck this one up, I'll have to do something quite spectacular. You know, they're there, they're ready, they want to, they know what I do. And, uh, you know, I think it's knowing that, you're, that this one's a safe one, you know, this one's going to go well. And then taking a bow at the end is pretty sweet too, where they're all yeah, all one one more, you know. Oh, Vicky, you must have missed it during the uh, the current situation. Um, I haven't. I haven't. I do still have a have a love hate relationship with it. I, I, you know, if I'm asked to do something with an audience and I don't know them at all, I think, oh God, is it going to go well? Is it going to not go well? But you know, those are the moments when you're really, I think, really living. You know, this 
it has been quite dull this last year, hasn't it? It's, there's been no excitement, there's been very mm. little fun. And that kind of living on the edge, when, you, when you're standing backstage and you don't know whether it's going to work or not, you know, that is it's a real adrenaline moment. And I think that is what we've missed this year, isn't it? Mm, definitely, yeah. No, not many adrenaline moments in no, lockdown, when as we said. <laughs> when you're homeschooling, <laughs> cooking your 50 millionth lunch to yeah. children who go, oh, is it soup again, Mum? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also been doing your um, your animated YouTube videos. Have you? Can you tell oh, me yeah. a bit more about those? Well, animation is something I taught myself to do um, a few years ago, really, because um, I wanted to animate the comp- the songs I did, the comedy songs. And um, I also then used them in my shows. When I, the second time I went to Edinburgh, I had a, a screen beside me. And for instance, one song is a, um, a, a husband and wife duo. And they start off, um, L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. And it's basically they're in love. And at the end, you know, then they gradually get more and more cross with each other. And at the end, they're spelling out divorce and, you know, it all goes horribly wrong. So in the, in the show, I had my husband, an animated husband on the screen next to me. And I would sing with him. Um, obviously, I was live next to him and he, we were duetting. I was duetting with my animated husband. So I was interested in how I could bring animation into my shows. And then at the same time, I'd written some... Um, uh, some uh, albums for children, children just nursery rhymes, and they've been doing really well. And um, I, I decided in the end to animate all of those and make a YouTube channel. So that was about two years' work, I think, um, of you know, because it's so slow the animation. But I've um, I've done about an hour and a half's worth of animations uh, to go with the nursery rhymes now. So um, I really enjoy it. It's again, it's another creative outlet. I love, you know, making a little character, giving him bones and or her bones and then make her walk or dance or, you know, speak or... And it's a, a stop motion animation, is it? It's that? not stop motion, no. Stop motion is, you know, very slow one where you literally take a photo then take another photo okay. and move it, take another photo. So this is commu- computer animation, but it's still very slow. Um, it is faster than stop animation. Mm. Um, but it will probably take, I don't know... A week to do a minute of animation wow so yeah it's not fast but that's kind of nice too forces you to take time <laughs> and your youtube channel has had so many views you had i was looking at on your website you've had is it 70 more than seventy thousand youtube hits that's my comedy one yeah i haven't looked at it for a while it might be more than that yeah the um the children animation's got millions and millions uh, not that I'm making a single penny out of it, but that's uh, another matter. Um, mm. But um, yes, the the um, comedy ones have had I don't know probably about eighty thousand now. What do you think it is about the with the children's um, nursery rhymes? You've um, they've been so popular with the CDs and online because they're classics, but in mm. your style. What do you think you've hit upon there? I know it was it was luck to be honest. But so when I had young children. I was obviously wanting to play lots of music to them because I'm, you know, com- completely convinced it has amazing benefits on children's development. So we were always singing um, and listening to CDs in the car and stuff. Um, but I often found the CDs and the music that were made for children uh, completely annoying. <laughs> and you know, you'd either have terrible sort of accompaniments with awful sampled sounds with no live instruments, 
or you'd have a really annoying over-the-top singing voice that was either patronizing or with loads of vibrato or I don't know just and, and parents as you know have to listen to these albums over and over and over again constantly and it drives you insane after a while if they're not good so I just decided that I would try something a bit different and just create the sort of thing that I would like to listen to with my children which was a very simple but good quality accompaniment with nice live instruments and then the vocals most importantly I want, wanted them to sound as if it was just like me singing to my children as they were going to bed or as we were sitting down on the sofa or something just simple lyrics um, I mean and a simple singing style and um, it seemed to hit a chord because you know I put in when I put them up on Amazon I said you know, my aim here is to for children to be able to listen uh, and adults listen to these endlessly without going too insane at uh, how annoying they were and um, people started commenting and saying actually this voice does not annoy me and I like the accompaniments and that sort of thing and then someone else would chip in and someone else would chip in and then they started um, you know getting more and more um, selling more and more and now with the streams um, I think I'm it's about 30 million streams a year now um, wow. And it's mostly in the UK, but um, also in America, Canada, and places like Singapore, places where they want to learn English. English. Um, and somehow I managed to get to the top of the Amazon tree. So if you have an Alexa and you say, play Old MacDonald, uh, it plays me. Oh, um, wow. And, yeah, so, and, and the same with sort of, you know, wind the bopping up, those kind of classics. Often it will play me. And... I'm not quite sure how I managed to get to the top, but that has been uh, by not amazing. being annoying. That is <laughs> <laughs> so funny. This voice does not annoy me. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, the music is so simple with these nursery rhymes that it's really easy to be annoying. And it's, <laughs> I guess, it, the trick is trying to do it in a way that's sophisticated enough for the for the parents not to be driven insane, but for the kids also to connect with. I think if you can please the parents, you're probably on a winner, aren't you, with every product mm. for a kid. I was talking to my daughter yesterday about the favourite programmes we used to watch on telly, and one of them was Charlie and Lola, and the other was, was Peppa Pig, because they both amused the parents. You know, I would giggle away at Peppa Pig when they were taking the mickey out of the dad and how useless he yeah. was. <laughs> and Charlie and Lola was completely um, uh, charming um, for, for adults and kids. And, you know, if that's a winner, isn't it? If the, if the kid says, Mum, sit down and watch telly with me or something, you're going to go, right, I'm not going to watch Lazy Town. That drives me insane. Let's watch Charlie yeah. and Lola. Or, you know, um, it's that magic formula, which sometimes is really simple. But if you can manage to hit the spot, you're on, on to a winner, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think simplicity is often the key. Yeah. So what, what are you working on at the moment? Well, um, just before lockdown one struck, I was uh, about to go and record an orchestra in Prague and uh, as a demo for a musical that I want to write. Um, but sadly, that all's, has all gone pear-shaped because the theatres have closed, sadly, and musicians have stopped working. So that has been on a back burner and I'm trying to work out how I can get that going again. Um, I have been um, animating, continue to animate for the kids' channel, thinking about other avenues. Um, but yeah, really the aim is the musical, and I hope I hope I can make that happen over the next few Are months. Are you able to tell us what it's about? Yeah, I think so. I, it's, um, it's Charles Dickens, and it's Nicholas, Nicholas Nickleby, um, which is... Um, 
one of his, I guess, less known works, and it is very long and quite dark. So it needs a bit of, um, uh, what's the word? Well, you know, work in making it sort of more accessible and uh, maybe injecting a bit more humour into it. But I saw it when I was, oh, I, I remember talking to you this about, didn't we, Sally? We both saw the same production when we must have been, I think, only about nine years old. You were younger. Mm. You must have been younger. Um, I, I, I was quite young, and I do remember it had a massive impact on me. That yeah. I just remember it had sort of scaffolds, and it was very, um, it was very dark, wasn't it? And mm. it was, but very dramatic and such powerful performances. Yeah, I think that may have been one of the shows that I saw that made me think. Yeah, that's one what of the I want to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was Trevor Nunn. I think it was one of his, yeah, early earlier works, and, and and he was sort of becoming big then, and um, yeah, it was incredibly emotive about a young um, boy called Smike who has learning difficulties and physical disabilities, and he's basically in a boy's home where he's abused um, by a sort of Mr. Bumble type character, uh, who's called Mr. Mr. Squeers. And Nicholas Nickleby saves him, basically runs off with him. And it's a sort of love story between him and Smike and about this wonderful friendship they have. And um, along the way, there's also themes of um, oppression uh, over women, um, like Nicholas Nickleby's sister um, and how little power women had in those days. And it just does seem strangely relevant still, this you know, with stories in the press of uh, you know all the Me Too movements, you know, recently and. Also, these hideous stories about um, children's homes and, and children being abused, um, you know, when they sort of have learning difficulties or physical disabilities. And, and so I think it's still very pertinent for today, even though it was written many years ago. There's, I just fell in love with the story. And with Dickens, it's so, the characters are just so wonderful. They're larger than life, you know. And um, I think there's lots of room for some fantastic music and fantastic songs and... Um, I don't think anyone's done a Dickens since Oliver, so it's kind of crazy. Possibly I shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and also, I don't think there's been a woman yet in the UK who has written a West End musical that has been a long-term success. So that's another driving goal for me, I think, to... Oh, I mean, who, I'm not sure I can make it happen, but I'll try. You know, I think it's um, there's far too many female composers out there and we're not putting ourselves forward and we're not making things happen and, and doors aren't opening for us. So um, it's it's another aim of mine to... It's another thing that's sort of pushing me to along. To make the door. Yeah, I try and make mm. the door open. It sounds amazing, Vicky. How how far have you have you got with it? I have composed three songs because that's what most people want to hear is to start off to hear the, the musical style, hear whether you're any good at what you do, whether they like what you're doing. Um, and I've sort of mapped out how I think... I would like it to be um, performed on, you know, in terms of um, Act 1 and Act 2, you know, what happens when. Um, but, yeah, I need to create, I need to get a creative um, cast now and crew. Um, and, but I'm going I'm to start with the music, I think, start with the three songs and then see if I can uh, create a, a team of talented, hopefully mostly female mm. cast and crew. Watch oh, this that place. would be amazing. Yeah, so in terms of the musical, would you need to find a collaborator for the script? Yeah, someone to do the book, basically, yeah, to, to adapt the book. And that has to be done really, that's really carefully. That's really important. I think whoever does that has to do a fantastic job. 
so I'd have to find someone to um, to adapt the book um, and yeah I ideally I'd like to get someone who, who's got a background in comedy um, to inject a bit of comedy as well Armando Iannucci for instance would be very handy although to be fair I would quite like to work for have an all-female team as much as I could really but that sort of person is, is so if there's anyone out there get in touch um, yes and then director you know etc etc there's a lot of people to get together producers cast crew etc but they'd like to see sort of three songs yeah to know thank the you. direction that you're headed yeah, yeah you send in three songs and uh, to various people who are sort of scouting for new musicals and they have a listen and they see if it's got legs sometimes you perform them live you know at um venues uh, obviously not at the moment but um yeah people are out there scouting for new stuff but whether it happens is yeah it's probably a bit of a needle in a haystack but there we are got to give it a go yeah i think the appetite will be there when we can mm. get theatres open again yeah. people will be very Definitely. keen to go back won't they oh i'll be booking away yeah absolutely mm. absolutely get you out there as well (laughs) yes yeah we were just um we were just talking about that fear thing weren't we that there's Mm. that sort of little like the the balance between the fear and the joy of doing it the kind of standing Mm. on the brink and thinking this could go either way yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but I sort of think why be ordinary when you can be a little bit extraordinary you know definitely and if you don't take the risk, you never know, do you? There's that feeling that you might, it might have been. A regret that you didn't, yeah, that you didn't give it a go. Yeah. Tough world, tough world, though. My daughter's sort of now thinking of going into it, like musical theatre world, and I'm like, oh, yeah, go for it. And at the same time going, ah, ah. <laughs> we're going to get so much rejection. Yeah. Can you cope with people just saying no all the time? No, you're mm. not right. You haven't got the right look. How do you cope with that? Because obviously you have that with music as well. How do you cope with that, with the knockback? Oh, not so much with music. I think you tend to sort of get the job and you just do it, it with music. It, but I did, for a while actually, um, I, I, I had an agent who was putting me up for auditions and it was hilarious. I mean, I, I've never done it before. I had no training. Um, but she knew I'd done my shows in Edinburgh and, and she thought, let's give it a go, see what happens. She was putting me up for adverts and stuff. And I, I didn't care whether I got it or not, but it was clear that everyone else was desperate to get whatever job we were going for because it was quite big money for people, you know, adverts for, I don't know, Lidl and whoever, uh, Virgin, I think was one. And I was just told to do the most ridiculous things. It was hilarious. Mm. I mean, you've obviously had this. Yeah. Story, <laughs> but there was one I went in, <laughs> there was one audition and they, it was for some sci-fi film. And he said, right, uh, there's this virus killing everybody around the world. Oh. Um, the symptoms are, first of all, you, you feel a rash. You notice a rash on your skin. Then you go all euphoric. And then you've, then you've got to feel like you're trapped in a box and you can't get out. And you've got to scream to get let out. And finally, you get turned to stone. <laughs> and that's all he said. And then he said, and action. And I was like, ooh, rash. Ooh, euphoric. Ah, oh, let me out, let me out, let me out. And then kind of, ugh, turned to stone. And <laughs> Oh. And I came out and I was like, oh, God, that was so weird. I didn't get the job. Oh, they're so funny, <laughs> aren't they? The commercial castings. I just always hope they don't keep the, uh, keep, <laughs> keep the film. The outtakes. 
I remember one. I have no idea whether you've done well or no. not. I remember one um, years ago where I had to, I went in and actually wait in the waiting room, you could hear people screaming, which is never a great... Yeah, yeah, I had the same thing. <laughs> never a great yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you go in and the, the uh, director said, right, can you say what really turns me on is short, fat, ugly, bald men who drive insert car here and um and wrestled that sound guy to the floor in sexual frenzy <laughs> it's like, what really really but, yeah oh my god uh, didn't, did you do didn't it or get did you walk one. out didn't get that one um well it's, so, it's they're just so bizarre aren't they sometimes you just have mm. <laughs> i had to look at the director once as if i found him the most attractive man ever to have walked the earth mm. and i was doing it and thinking you're getting off on this. This yeah. is a bit. I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, there's a theme emerging. And here. then you hear. I mean, oh, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm a, like a nearly fifty year old woman. I mean, how, what must it be like for twenty year olds? I mean, it, you know, it's just. Oh, I hope I really that's hope changed a bit. Yeah, I do hope that's changed. Hmm. I didn't get that job either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not seductive enough. But I do think there is a lot to be said for. Um, for not not minding if you don't get the you know just trying to yeah. have that attitude of what's meant to be will God, be it and, is a lifesaver yeah yeah there's one of them I just had to run on the spot like crazy and I was running on the spot with someone else and this lady suddenly turned her ankle and had to stop and the casting director said right we'll have to stop there sorry uh, well, you know thanks for coming and this poor girl who was desperate said no no I'll be better I'll be better if you pick me I'll, I'll be better by the by the, you know, the real thing. And I was like looking at her going, what? And the casting director just said, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. Goodbye. <gasps> oh. uh, There's sort of desperation. Yeah. yeah. No, it's hard. That's... I think it helps not to really care. But then yeah. if you, I have, always, I have another income, so I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> but these guys don't. So you can understand the desperation. Mm. I definitely think that's something that's, you know, it helps being a bit older because you've got, you know that, well, f from my perspective, I'm doing it for for the joy and the fun of it rather than the need anymore. I definitely had that mm. as a 20-something. I was like, went mm. for jobs where, where I really, really desperately wanted wanted it yeah, in, yeah. A, in a sort of much more needy way, which I don't think... Yeah, absolutely. I think maturity... Which must be completely obvious to, yeah. to the directors, that sort of neediness. Um, but yeah, I mean, totally understandable. You're just starting out. You want to make a name for yourself, or at least make a bit of money, or you know, just have someone say yes to you uh, and give you a job. <laughs> yeah, it's much easier when you're in later life. Yeah, and you have can put, keep it into perspective. Yeah, exactly. Do you think all your all the different experiences feed into each other as well? I wonder if they influence. You know, if the comedy influences the music and the music. Obviously, you've used yeah. them as a the, both genres together, but yeah, I think it all helps. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly, if I was you know to start writing, I mean, writing sketches and things, you can use little bits like that, just little every, everyday experiences you've had. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly, I'm sure things do feed into each other, and everything you know makes you the person you are, doesn't it? All these little chinks and bumps along the way. I guess as well, I wonder if it sort of refreshes the other 
discipline in a way like you know you go and do some comedy for a while and then you come back to music and it renews mm. or gives you a different absolutely strain. yeah so I'm now coming back more I guess to music because the comedy world has stopped anyway um and I come back to music and I think actually I know I'm really good at this <laughs> and I know I can do this when I get on stage to do comedy I'm never quite sure if it's going to go well or not but so there's that sort of added confidence that actually you know I did do this for 30 years and I know what I'm doing um so yeah it does put a fresh light on on other things certainly yeah I guess part of the reason for having these conversations is is to sort of give people who anyone who might be on the cusp of starting something or or thinking, mm. I wonder what would happen if I tried, you know, mm. this creative path. What do you think mm. you would say to someone who's considering giving it a go but not quite there yet? Or, or what would you mm. have said to you when you were on the on the verge? Oh, I'd say definitely go for it. Give it a go. Um, and it might come to nothing, but then you've not you've not lost anything, have you? But you know, it might come to something which would be amazing. I mean. The one thing I would say is that actually I think women are incredibly creative beings and have all sorts of ideas all the time. Often they don't have the confidence to pursue them um, and that's a tragedy. They should definitely pursue them. But also don't give up. I think as a, as a, as a gender, partly because we're sometimes not so confident, we have a knock and then we don't carry on and we leave it. And actually, I think you have to be in it for the long haul. So if you've got an, you know, an amazing idea for a product that you want to produce or something, you've got to say to yourself, this could take 10 years or 15 years, but I'm, I'm not going to give up. Um, I think it's about staying power and confidence, particularly for our gender, I, I would say. Um, you know, I see it in, in our teenage girls, how they're, how they sort of question themselves all the time and the teenage boys just muddle along and there's all sorts of studies aren't there that's, that say that you know if we're going for an interview or whatever we have five out of ten things we need a bloke will go well I've got those I'm going to go for it and a woman will go oh I've only got five mm. you know we're perfectionists we don't we, we 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 care a little bit too much about what people think I think sometimes obviously I'm generalizing and, and it's not you know it's not true for everybody mm. but I think you know, there's a reason why, you know, there's a, this glass ceiling. And it's not only because of sexism and it's not only because of the patriarchy. A lot of it is. But I think also we've got to have the the guts and the staying power to just keep going and knocking on doors and until we get through. And then our daughters will see that we've got through. And then it will, we'll make the path a little bit easier for them. Mm. Yeah, I hope, I th- I hope so. I think that's absolutely right. I was reading something the other day about that, that girls do tend to, for whatever reason, I think it, this particular study was saying because they um, maybe develop a little bit earlier, they start to have a more fixed mindset because and think that they're good at something or they're not, rather than if they put in the effort, they can improve. Mm. Mm. And I, I think that's yeah. really, really important that we can, we can improve our poten- on our potential by practice and by mm. staying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, my daughter's always looking at sort of people who are better than her and saying, oh, well, they're better than me. 
it doesn't mean you're not good. You're just, you know, you're in the middle. And it's always the one who works hardest who gets there in the end. Um, when I went to music college, when I was a kid, I used to go on Saturdays to the Junior Guildhall. And they kept on saying to us, it's, it's 1% talent and 99% hard work. And this was a college where they were taking, you know, the most promising kids musically. And, and they were telling us, it's hard work. It's just hard work. Get down and work. Um, That's amazing that they said it's, yeah, 1%, 1% to 99. Mm, mm, yeah. So don't, yeah, exactly going back to what you're saying, a lot of it is just to put, putting the work in and not going, oh, he's better than me, she's better than me. I, I won't bother. Whether it's sport, whether it's music, whether it's comedy, whether it's dance, whether it's singing, you know, whether it's acting, whatever it is, everything requires a bit of work, doesn't it? Mm. Just got to put it in, yeah. put in the hours. 47,000 hours, is it? Is that what it is? Oh. To learn an instrument or something? To learn? Yeah. There's a number, isn't there? Yeah. There, was it the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours to get, is that to get proficient? There's, there's a number, isn't yeah. there? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, it's a lot, it's a lot of hours. <laughs> I'll, must go I'll let you go and get on with your uh, with, with your practice. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you. Vicky. It was really lovely to talk to pleasure. you. Pleasure. And um, pleasure. Yes, I'm looking forward to the musical very, very much. Mm. Yeah. What's no pressure. Saying? No pressure. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you might be waiting a few years, but. <laughs> I've got to do it now, haven't I? It's out there. Yeah, I've told you. Exactly. That's it. Go for it. No more excuses. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Creative Twist. I hope you've enjoyed it. Show notes and resources can be found on my website, sallyvandpump.com slash creative twist podcast. I'd love to connect on social media at Sally Vanderpump and hear what inspires you to get or stay creative. Thanks to Rosie Kernahan for the podcast photo, to Vicky Arledge for composing the music, to Jen at Studio 2711 for the artwork, and to Tina Cooney for her branding. <laughs>